this morning, I would like uh, to talk a little more about awareness practice and maybe introduce another object of concentration. But first, I think it's very important too that we are clear about what awareness practice is. What does it mean to be aware of the breath, of the sound, of sensation, or whatever it is we decide to be aware of? I'm sorry, we keep, we seem to be repeating ourselves, but <laughs> sometimes it seems that people think it is that you observe the experience outside of yourself. I think we have to be careful of not doing that. Because again, this awareness practice is very much about what I talked about yesterday, to try to see and to know something free from attachment. So I think this is very important, that point. And for, for example, the Buddha used to say, like if you uh, being aware of the breath, in a way mean that breathing in, I know I am breathing out. No, breathing in, I know I'm breathing in. Breathing out, I know I am breathing out. Sorry about that. <laughs> Me and the English language. And once somebody asked him, you know, uh, what do your monk, monks do? And he said, oh, my monks, they eat, they walk, they sit. And the person said, well, that's not very special. Anybody can eat, walk, sit, you know. What's the point about this? And then the Buddha pointed out that when his monks sat, they knew that they were sitting. When they eat, they knew that they were eating. And when they walked, they knew that they were walking. But when we use this word knowing to translate whatever word he was using, we have to be careful that it is not an intellectual knowledge, but that it's most knowing as being in experience fully in all its aspects. And so I think we have to be careful there that by us trying to, in a way, be aware of the breath, we actually do not reduce the breath or ourselves in that looking. And that, in a way, we are careful of not becoming mesmerized. So I think we have to be careful. It's not that we kind of focus on the breast to the exclusion of everything else. And that in some way we try to hold the breath. I would rather that you have more this image that you rest in the experience of breathing. You try to know as much as you can with your whole body mind the experience of breathing. Because generally when we breathe, we actually don't think about it. It is there, it happens, in a way without us, in a way really knowing it as such. And so when we say be aware of the breath, we actually are putting your attention on one object. But in being attentive to that object, we are not trying to make you exclude everything else. So the way I would see concentration on the breath is that your main focus is on the breath, is on the sensation of breathing. So you are not, in a way, projecting something. You are not imagining something. You're not controlling something. You're just, in a way, resting on the sensation and, in a way, becoming one 
with the breath, becoming one with the thing. So at the beginning, of course, we seem to feel like we are doing it, and then it feels rather mechanical. But at the same time, we also, I would say, we have the main focus, but also we have a wide focus. Your main focus is on the breath, but at the same time, you are aware that in the background, there are sounds, there are sensations, there are thoughts. So the concentration is not exclusive, it's inclusive. It's more that the, the focus is there, but then there is a why this is within a wide open awareness. And I think that's what will help us not to be in a way mesmerized. We're not trying to be mesmerized by one point. But it's very much because you, we put concentration and inquiry together. We're very much trying to develop quietness and clarity together. We're not trying to, in a way, become spaced out, separate from our surrounding, kind of floating above your cushion. That's not what we're trying to do. On the contrary, we're trying to have you inhabit as much as you can the whole experience. And there is one practice of Zen meditation, Soto Zen meditation, where that's what you try to do. You have no object of concentration as such. But you try to be as aware as you can of the whole thing. And this is rather hard to do. And I think that's why generally it's helpful to have an object. But we have to be careful that that object does not reduce our awareness, does not mesmerize us. But that the object helps us actually, through being aware of the breath, we can also be aware of everything else. It, in a way, helps us to be here more present. So that concentration is not so much narrowing the focus, is not excluding things, but is more, as Stephen pointed out yesterday, remembering our intention to be aware. And then I would say, 80% of concentration is remembering, and only 20% is being really with the thing. I'm not saying that you spend your time being distracted, but I think often people have this impression that we should be able, relatively shortly, to be in a state where there is nothing, where there is just the breath and nothing else, and that there is no interruption, there is no distraction. Possibly this is possible sometime, but not a lot of the time in my experience. So I think what we actually are trying to do is not trying to create this space when there is nothing coming up, but again trying to create this space when we're not grasping at anything which appear in the spaciousness of our mind and body process in this moment. I think there is a slight distinction there. So that, in a way, part of the concentration, to have an object of concentration, is a tool to very much see that the object of concentration in itself is not sacred. For that reason, one object is not better than another. It's just one object might be more useful for yourself at this moment than another according to your inner or outer condition. 
think it's important to see that. So then in that way, you have to become your own teacher. Or what would be better for me to do now? But at the same time, not to be thinking, should I do this, should I do that, and spend the time kind of you know, vacillating. Choose one and stay with it would be my advice. But it doesn't mean that you must always stay with one thing. Because sometimes it's more helpful, uh, as I'm going to point out, to be with the sound. Sometimes it's more helpful to be with the breath. Sometimes we can also do something else. I think the object we use as such, it seems to me, is not that vitally important. I know everybody, every people of a certain technique say, my technique is the best technique. You go to all the traditional teachers were the greatest and they're fantastic, everything, but they'll tell you, my technique is the only one. And only the one who are kind of the, the younger one who are kind of realizing that there are many, many methods out there are starting to think, well, possibly, also technique could possibly lead, but you know, with great reluctance, it seems. And I think this has very little to do with the technique itself than to do with our tendency to, to think that what is good for me is good for everybody else. I think this is a very natural human tendency. And it also, anyway, I'll talk more about this in my talk next time. This is another white subject. So if I go back to concentration, <laughs> sorry for this digression. So concentration. <laughs> so the idea is that you're going to try to rest on the breath or whatever other object. <coughs> and of course, the mind is going to produce something else. Often the mind will produce a thought, or we'll have a feeling, or there'll be all kinds of things, sounds, various things happening. <coughs> and you see, the thing is that generally, as I, I mentioned yesterday, something happened, and we stick to it, and off we go. And in a way, the object of concentration is there for you to remember, ah, my intention in this moment is to be focused on the breath, to be aware of the whole experience of this moment, and not to get lost in abstraction. Because I think a lot of the time, we are lost, even if it's very concrete, seemingly concrete abstraction in our mind, but we are lost somewhere else. We are thinking of the past, we're thinking of the future, we're thinking of liking something, disliking something. But actually, if you think about it, when you're sitting on this cushion, I mean, normally not much should happen. And this is as it is. You're just sitting here, nobody is bothering you, nobody is coming and saying, you know, <laughs> you know, you should not do this, you like this. I mean, nobody does this. But within that, your mind, of course, will produce things. But actually, you can help the mind to be more still by actually coming back to the object. So it doesn't matter that things come up. What matters is that you don't get so entangled with them. And so as a Zen master said, you can have a thousand thoughts. It doesn't matter as soon as each time you have one of those thousand thoughts, you see, ah, this is abstraction. This is being somewhere else. And you come back to the breath, to the sounds, whatever, in this moment, to this experience. And so what we're trying to do in meditation is not hold on to the breath for dear life, and I'm not going to have any things coming up in this moment, 
but more that it happens and we let it be. We don't do anything with it and we come back to the breath. So what we try in a way is what I would say narrows the gap. That you know, I, I love the being in London and they say mind the gap. And uh, it's the same in meditation. In a way, mind the gap. How long is your gap between being aware of the breath? You know, is it a gap you kind of goes down there and we never see you for the next hour? <laughs> or is it a minute gap and you come back? So that you go and you come back. You go and you come back. So in a way, this is the point. You know, mind the gap. How big is it? Not that you should feel terrible, but still, you know, kind of keep it in mind. And also, I think the point of the concentration is that what are these gaps made of? Us getting lost in various habits, as I was mentioning yesterday. And I think that's what one of the main gifts of concentration is to help us to not feed to not give energy to our habits so that they don't become bigger and bigger and bigger. And at the same time, by coming back, you kind of, in a way, dissolve those habits. At one level, you don't feed them. At another level, you dissolve them. So they become less kind of uh, strong. And I'll talk more about these habits too later on. So that I would encourage you to try to come back to the object, the breath, or the sounds, or whatever, as a tool, not as something that in a way is forcing you to do something, but as a means to come back and rest in awareness. Because that's what you're trying to do as you sit in meditation, is come back and rest in the moment. And at one level you would say, I mean, what's the point of resting in the moment? And for me, in a way, the gift of that would be that in that moment, you realize, you rest in the intimate knowledge and experience that you are alive and that this is incredible. That we are alive in this moment and not dead. If we're all dead, I mean, this would be a very different retreat. But we are not. So, there is life. What do we do with it in this moment? We choose to rest in it and be in a way fully present to it. Or are we sleeping to it? And it will be nearly half dead. Another thing that I think is good to look at at the beginning of a retreat is pain. You know that, I mean, some of you have sat for some time, so you are quite relatively comfortable when you sit in meditation. But again, our body is not programmed to always, you know, do what we want. And I know for myself, since a few years, I've had some physical problem. But, so I think you have to be careful that when you sit in meditation for 45 minutes, it's very, of course we will have some pain because just to sit still, we're not used to that. We're not too used to sit on the floor, so there'll be some pain. But it's very important that as soon as you get up, if the pain goes, then the pain is adventitious. It's just because you were in that position for that length of time. But if the pain continues throughout the day, please do change your posture. Please do sit on a chair. Because if you have a back problem or knee problem or shoulder problem, then I think it's very important that you listen to the body. I think I learned for myself, since I can't sit on the floor anymore, that you can easily, easily sit in a chair. 
And sometimes too, if you find the walking period too tiring, then just go and do lying down meditation or just sit outside. So during the retreat, trying to really, of course, follow the schedule, but also bringing, being your own teacher in terms of the pain. Of course, sometimes it's good to push ourselves a little. But I think this has to be within reason, and this has to be with wisdom as well. And also, just as by, uh, by the by, now every afternoon, the first sitting at 2.30 is going to be a guided meditation, which will be in conjunction with the instruction in the morning. And if you find the guided meditation helpful, please come to that. If you hate guided meditation, then please do not feel that you have to come. This is optional. And you might want to sit outside, or you might want to go and lie down. So it's again, it's very much up to you. I think it's important at one level to follow the schedule, but it's also important for you to listen to what is beneficial for me at any given moment. Another thing I think also uh, to look at just slightly in terms of pain and of putting together concentration and inquiry, which are the two essential components of Buddhist meditation, is if you have pain time to time to look at it, to see, to see that according to our state of mind, we feel differently about pain. If you notice, if you're totally daydreaming, you're totally somewhere else, totally engaged and tangled somewhere else, you generally, the time passes very quickly. I ring the bell, oh, it's already finished. Oh, no, my daydream was so, I could have stayed here longer. You know, it was very interesting. Uh, if uh, you are very concentrated, there is pain, but actually you do not identify with it. You do not magnify it. So it's just there, just sensation. And, but often we are in the middle. We are half concentrated, half somewhere else. And I think that's where we can, we have pain in the knee, in the shoulder, or whatever. And then we go to it. And generally it's interesting, there is a sequence. Again, contact and reaction. There is pain. This is my pain. This is my knee. This is terrible. My knee is going to fall off. I'll be never able to walk again. And then you're very anxious. And at that moment, I mean, not all the time, but time to time to just look. Look with concentration and inquiry and go inside the knee itself, inside the pain in the back. Go in there. And at that moment, you don't see it as pain as such. My pain. This is terrible. You see it as a bundle of sensation. So again, playing with that, not inflicting pain in order to see this, but time to time to inquire into it, to look at it, and also to be careful, to listen to it, and use a chair. Another thing I would say to be careful about is expectation. At the beginning of a retreat, that you've come for a week of meditation, you've done all this, you've prepared everything, you organize yourself, and to the amount that you have to really organize yourself and you know various things, it was kind of hard work, possibly, coming here. <coughs> then to that extent, there could be a lot of expectation that you want to experience exactly the same thing you had before, or that you want to experience this, that, and another. And of course, as we sit in meditation in a retreat, because there is certain conditions, then there will be certain results. And very often, 
we're able to feel much more peaceful, much more still. The mind can kind of rest a little. We can learn to rest in a very creative way. But not necessarily so. And I think we have to be careful of this expectation. I want to get this, or I have got this before. I want to repeat it. To me, there is two aspects to the meditation, what I would call the apparent aspect and the non-apparent one. And I would say, for me, the non-apparent one actually might be more important slightly than the apparent one. I would call the apparent one when we kind of really see that we are making progress, that we might have certain experience, what we might call depth experience, so that we feel, oh yes, we feel ourselves differently. And I think this is useful insofar that it makes us see we are not just the way we think we are. There are more opportunity we can feel very differently. But at the same time, I think there is another aspect of the practice which I would call non-apparent. You can't really see it. And this is what I would call the dissolving aspect. That because we cultivate concentration and inquiry, this, just the intention of doing that, this has an effect. And I would call it the effect. That if you have a, check it out. You might have a meditation, which you might consider a bad meditation, because you know you were sleeping or all over the place, and really it was not you know, good meditation. People often tell me, oh, this was a good one, this was a bad one. And notice at the end, your mind will be different than at the beginning, because there is that effect of resting, of stopping, of dissolving. And then I think to me that's what will then come out in our daily life and not actually the experience itself, the one which was very apparent. That happens and then it's gone. And what you have is actually the memory of it. And that memory can help you, but I think the dissolving effect can help you so much more in kind of really starting to let go of your habit, of your holding of your grasping. So being careful of this expectation of wanting a good meditation. I would say any meditation is a good meditation because you are doing it. Because you start with the intention to do it. So you might lose the intention time to time in the middle. Hopefully time to time it comes back. So that's why I would encourage you to really firm up uh, try to give energy to that intention when you sit. Not to come mechanically to the sitting, but yes, I am sitting. I have the intention to be aware, to be present, to be here. And then I would like to introduce uh, another object of concentration, which is sounds. I think the breath is very useful because it's there all the time. But I find sometimes if you have a cold or if your uh, sinus are a little blocked, I mean to watch the breath is a bit tough. So I think then listening to sound can be much easier. Also, if you become too introverted with listening to the breath, being in a way nearly mesmerized by the breath, then I think you can nearly close yourself off with the meditation, which I think is not so useful. And then I think listening to sound can help us to open up to the world. That this meditation is not just 
about these inner processes, but also about the, in a way, the relationship between inner and outer, and the kind of being that being inextricably together. And I think sound, listening to sound at that level, can be very useful. And also, with sound, it's very good because you can't control sound. You can't make sound. The only thing you can do with sounds is wait for them. And also, sounds come in all kinds of diverse. Sounds you like, sounds you dislike, sounds you think, mm, what is this sound? What is it doing here? And actually, trying to not discriminate. When you listen to sound, just listen. So in a way, and when, then you might say, oh, but when there is no sound, what do I do? Listen to the silence. And even in a way, even the silence will actually have a sound, have a feel to it. So that's why, if you want, if you want to stay with the breath or do anything else for that matter, this is fine. <laughs> but if you want to do this, then there is generally a three kind of three movement, three movement to do it. You start with the sounds inside yourself. But again, being careful that you don't become mesmerized by it or worried about it. Like if you gurgle or swallow or there is some sound in your stomach, please do not come, oh, what is this? Am I bothering everybody? Just listen to it. The point, I mean, I think what is good about sound is trying to, at the same time, cultivate the mind which is free from attachment. Just listen to the sound as it is, and nothing else. Be with it, totally, but do not think about it, make story of it, grasp at it, reject it. Just be with the sound. Then you open the attention to sounds, to include also sounds in the rooms. There could be shuffling, there could be a little cough or whatever. Again, no naming of it, no judging of it, just listening, just being with that. And then, of course, expanding to the sound outside this room and just listening to the sound of the world, again, without discrimination, just being there, waiting for them. I think this is can actually can be very useful because you're just open to whatever comes, and it helps you to be less fixed into, I want things this way or that way. You just, in a way, listen to whatever, however it is. And I remember once I was, uh, I used to give a retreat in Findor, and some people, some of you might have heard of Findor, which is this new age place in the depths of Scotland, you know, and you think Scotland, wildness, everything. Actually, Findor is right next to a big military airbase, like if they, it was there on the other side of the road, you could not be closer. And they have this huge plane who regularly in the morning when I used to give my talk, used to roar ahead. I had to stop. And so when you sit in meditation, you know, it's kind of little bird, everything, and then you have this, oh, this kind of huge roar. And it's very interesting because if you just do listening meditation, it's just sound. It's just sound. It's not bad, good, or otherwise. It's just sound. And I find it always interesting to listen to this big army played with just listening. It was a very interesting experience. That's what I would encourage you to do. And within that, to start to bring a little inquiry into the meditation. And inquiry is not intellectual inquiry. You are not thinking about something. You have to be very careful there. 
But inquiry is about noticing the experience, being inside the experience in a different way. And for example, with sounds, what you can time to time ask yourself, but very gently and not scientifically, please. I hope we don't have any scientists here. <laughs> or if they are here, that they will not start to. Science is very good, but not in this place. In this, when I, is when you listen to the sound, ask yourself, where does the sound stop and where does the hearing start? As an experience, I'm sure as a scientific fact, I'm sure it can be all explained. <laughs> but as an experience, how does it work? You listen to the sound, and you can't, it's just a seamless experience. You can't say the sound started there, then there was whatever in the middle, then there is a here, there. As you see it in meditation, it's just a continuum. It's just this experience of listening. And in a way, inquiring into our tendency to separate things, what we see, the seer, what is in between. And just kind of, in a way, opening to the flow of experience, that things actually are very, kind of, in a way, coming together, very interconnected, very interdependent. You can never say, this stops here, this starts there. It's, as an experience of contact, it's quite, it's mesh, it's seamless. So in a way, to look at that, and I'd like to finish with this slightly enigmatic Zen dialogue. I thought, because I thought it was very appropriate considering the, the kind of sounds we have. So this is a dialogue between a disciple and Master Chinon, who is a Korean Zen master of the 12th century. And so Chinon, the master, says, Do you hear the sounds? of the crow calling and that magpie calling. The disciple said, yes. Chinu says, trace them back and listen to your hearing nature. Do you hear any sounds? The student says, at that place, sounds and discrimination do not exist. And Chinu says, marvelous, marvelous. So, I leave you with this. <laughs> any, so this is the instruction, any question, anything which is not clear? Yes? I mean, uh, uh, in two days, I'll give a lot of instruction about this. But uh, just now, I would say, in a way, there is two ways to deal with this. The thing is that if you look at your thoughts and at those dark clouds that covers, sometimes they come, they come small and then they become very big, you see, is to 
there is two ways to deal with it. One way is to just see that this is a thought, but at this moment you have the intention to be aware of the breath or to listen to sound. So you let it be and you come back. But I think that if the thought is a specific problem that you have kind of really been thinking a lot about, is very much on your mind, then what I would suggest is what I call creative meditative thinking. And that you choose one period in the day where you just meditate on those type of thought that are to do with something which is very kind of uh, on your mind. Then for 30 minutes you look at them but in a different way. Instead of repeating them, because I think a lot of the time what we do with thought is that we repeat something. We've done it 100 to 100 times. So in there I would say, that's why I say creative meditative thinking, you look at it differently. You try to see it from somebody else's point of view. You try to think something you've not thought before about this. And then you do this for 30 minutes, and at the end, you have dealt. You have been with that, and then the next day you do it again for 30 minutes. So that the rest of the day you do not have to spend a lot of time on it. Because I think it's, of course, I cannot stop anybody from thinking whatever they want to think on the cushion. You do what you want. This is your meditation, not mine. (laughs) However, if you want to deal with the habits of the mind, which bring, where, where there is a lot of attachment, a lot of a grasping, a lot of habits, I do think we need to use the tool of concentration to try to start to dissipate that. And that's why we come back to the breath or we come back to the sound. So that's what I would say now. But on Wednesday, I'll talk more about it in detail. Okay, so if uh, we just... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.